And it's been a long time since we've been able to do what we've always had people register to be baptized. It's been a long time since we've had people just walk up because they felt God moving there and stirring their hearts. But we've got enough changing facilities now backstage to make that happen. So if you're thinking about baptism, God's calling your life that direction. Next weekend is the weekend. All campuses, all congregations, we will be baptizing people. They were also advertising Alpha on there that's coming up, begins September 28th, if my mind is straight. And I take too many pills, you always know what I'm talking about, but I think it's September 28th. If you have, who has never taken Alpha here? Go on, let me embarrass you in public. You've never done it? You should do it. If nothing else, it's free dinner and a movie. Like, what's to lose? It's really, but it is a really worthwhile introduction to what it means to follow Jesus, to explain Christian faith to you in real simple terms, in a place for you to ask your questions, express your doubts or concerns or other opinions, and have a conversation together. We'd love to invite you to participate, and you can register online, faccalgary.com. We'd love to welcome you to that. One other thing I need to say at the start before we get going, since we've killed all the video things. A few weeks ago, we had some of our international workers visiting here, Buzz and Myrna Maxi. Any of you remember them being here? And they told us about the completion of the translation of the Bible into an original language in Indonesia where they've been serving. First time ever. I think it started with his parents or grandparents that have been working on this for such a long time. And it's complete. They've got it written down. And they've also made audio recordings for people that are not literate and unable to read. And they had those beautiful little devices he was showing. And they were asking us, could we partner to help? And we got the costs figured out of what they would need for the equipment and for the printing and for the distribution. And some of it's been covered already. The outstanding balance that we need to think about that would help Buzz and Myrna get this done and get it sent everywhere it needs to go is $10,300, which is a lot of money. But given the size of our church family, it's also not a lot of money. And I'd love to encourage you, if you'd like to be part of making that possible for them to get those things shipped and taken to the various communities roundabout, if you designate some of your giving today or at home or online, just click on the missions tab, drop down there. We'll know exactly what to do with it and we'll make sure that they get all of that this week and they'll be able to start distribution by helicopter next weekend. Could you join with me to do that, please? It would be an amazing gift that we could give to them and encourage them in their journey. We are thinking about regrets, simply asking the question, what if? Because all of us at some point in life have some regrets. Some of them are small, some are huge, but we have them. Maybe these ones resonate with you. Things like, I wish I'd thought about God more in my life, or I wish I had loved better and been loved better. I wish I'd taken better care of myself. I wish I'd been more careful with my money. I wish I'd spent my life on a big cause, doing something meaningful. These topics, spirituality and relationships and health and money and purpose, every time the survey is taken about people's regrets, they finish right up at the top of the list. People struggle with these things. And if I'm to venture a guess, I would say that in this room and those of you that are watching online at home, many of you are probably in the same position. We all struggle with these kind of regrets. I've already shared plenty of mine with you earlier in our little series. Here's another one. It's 1985. I've met my dream girl, Jillian. She's now my wife. We actually went to school together for a long time, but I didn't know her very well then. But we started dating in 85 in Easter time. By summer, she moved from Northern Ireland, where we lived, to Berlin in Germany. Was it something I said? Something I did? I don't know. I wasn't going to let her go that easily, so I decided in September I'd go visit her. And her mum asked me if I'd take something with, her, with me to give to her. And I said, sure, I could make that happen. It's 85. They don't have like x-ray machines and body scanners and all that thing at airports. There's no security whatsoever, basically. You just walk on a plane. 
But they did ask questions and they'd sometimes stop you with your luggage. Now, did you pack this yourself? Does everything in this belong to you? Do you have anything dangerous? And well, I packed it. It's all mine. Nothing dangerous in there. And so then I asked the fatal question, do you mind if I look inside? Well, it didn't matter whether I minded if the guy looked inside or not. He was inside, pulling out all my stuff, not that I had much, till he found a little parcel. If I had any intelligence or common sense whatsoever, I would have said something at that point in time. But fearing for my life, I said nothing. And the guy opens it up and finds these women's things. Are they yours, sir? Well, I've already said they're mine, so now I have to keep up the pretense that they're mine. (laughs) I regretted ever agreeing to do anything for her mother. I have never carried anything for the woman herself ever since I love you, Jackie, but I will never carry anything for you. (laughs) Everybody has regrets. After the London Olympic Games in 2012, Michael Phelps his life was spinning out of control. I mean, he's an amazing athlete. I think it's 28 medals, Olympic medals he's won in his career. But his life was falling apart after those Olympics. By 2014, he'd hit rock bottom. His relationships were crashing. He was crashing. Substance abuse, couldn't care less about his craft anymore. He was arrested on his second DUI, sent to rehab. He was on probation was banned from swimming by the Federation. And he later admitted this in an interview. I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. I thought the world would just be better off without me. I figured that would be the best thing to do and just end my life. When he was in rehab, he actually discovered things could be different. He started reading a book that many of you may have read, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. I think it's the second bestseller in the world after the Bible. And Phelps explained in another interview that that book, his words, turned me into believing that there's a power greater than myself and there's a purpose for my life in this planet. And as bad as hitting rock bottom was for him, it was also a place that changed everything for him. A situation that he certainly regretted became a turning point in his life, a place where things could be different. He said again, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today in every aspect of my life without that. Since that rock bottom moment when his life began to change, he's reconnected with his estranged father. He got engaged to his girlfriend. He's had a child. He found a new sense of purpose. He's been sharing his skills by coaching younger people in swimming. And at the 2016 Olympics in Rio, a couple of years after being in rehab, he was a new man. And a story that began as regret turned into a story that had been reframed. And here's what you need to know today. God wants to take your story of regret and reframe it. He wants to take your story of regret and reframe it. You could call it reframe, redeem, refresh, renew. Pick any word that begins with R, you're probably right. Reframing is allowing God to take hold of our past, even our regrets, even our pain, And then use them for his great cause and for his great gain. Because how we perceive things in our life right now is not the way it always has to be. It just isn't. The Apostle Paul, he's one of the earliest followers of Jesus. Many of you would know his story. He started out persecuting Christians, hunting them down, arresting them, having them executed. But he became a follower of Jesus when he encountered him one day. He knew that God could reframe his life. 
from being a murderer to becoming a missionary. And he wrote this one time. He said this, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What things? How many things? All. There you go. Some of you are awake. Thank you. All things. Good things, bad things, all things. Look at the words. It's God who works for good. And yet not all things are good. They're just not. Not all things are good. There's a distinction between God working things for good and things being good. Because some things are just wrong. The carelessness of a drunk driver who robs a family of a parent. That's not good. That's never good. It's always bad. The abuse of a young child brings no good. Destroying somebody's trust, blighting their relationships, tarnishing their own life, chasing away their innocence. The all-consuming pressures of somebody at work, maybe a school teacher, trying to figure out how to get everything done, the paperwork, the kids, the prep, till the stress becomes too much and they quit. The kids lose their teacher, the teacher loses their self-esteem. Everybody begins to hurt. Takes years for a life to be rebuilt. None of these things are good. They're not even good for people who love the Lord, who love Jesus. But in all things, God works for the good. Well, that's amazing. He's a good God who gave us a world to enjoy, not to endure. But in sometimes we find that it's more difficult than that. Suffering, pain, regrets. They have never been part of God's plan for us or for his world. But we live in a world we know that's fallen and broken, just like us. And stuff happens rooted in our own sinfulness. Good stuff, bad stuff, it happens to everybody. Sometimes it's us doing it, sometimes it's people doing it to us. And yet very often people will think, well, if I become a follower of Jesus, God's going to look after me. That means bad things won't happen to me. Just good things will happen to me. Or at least the bad things will be very small. They'll be way outweighed by the good because God's got me. It's going to be just fantastic. And then when it doesn't happen, people get all bent out of shape about what's gone wrong. But when Paul wrote this, he didn't give anybody a sugar-coated version of what life would be like, of suffering or regret. He didn't say bad things are really blessings in disguise or every cloud has a silver lining. God can use bad things for our good, but they are still bad and they still hurt. Jesus, at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who had died, Weeping, wailing. You want to keep reading it? It really means he's coming unglued. That's what he was doing. You can tell that loneliness and pain and grief, they hurt him and he hated it as much as we do. And yet he came to experience it, to take it, to destroy it without destroying us so that we could live fully and live again the way God intended so that he could work it for good. The promise here is not that if we love God, everything's going to be okay. That only good things will happen to you. That's not true. The promise is not that if you love God, he'll protect you from every bad thing that could possibly happen to you. That's not true either. The promise here is that God can take the bad things that we've experienced or the bad things that we have done and somehow work good out of them and use them for good. He can make beautiful things out of ugly things. He reframes things and our perspective changes. 
In fact, Paul knew this from personal experience. Several times he'd been put in prison. And during the summer, as we read through his letters, many of them were written while he was in jail. Here's one. The letter he wrote to his friends in Philippi, the Philippians, he says this to them in chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the progress of the gospel. So that it's become known, actually become known to the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, they dare to speak the word with boldness, greater boldness and without fear. In other words, because he's in prison, everybody in prison knows what's going on. And the people outside prison are going, yea, God, if Paul can do it, we can do it. Nobody wants to be in prison, certainly not in those days. But God can reframe. He takes the bad thing and he somehow works it into something different, something good. There's another kind of heroic figure who crashed and burned that we've been following along during our little series. A guy who has an amazing story of regret and of how it could be reframed. Comes from a little family who were tending sheep, just a shepherd boy. He wins an improbable military victory against the giant called Goliath. He rises to national prominence. He's eventually crowned king in their little country. He wrote many of the Psalms in our Bible, the stories of the inside of his relationship with God. His name is David, King David. We know his story. His life was not without serious regret. His taking of Bathsheba, the one of, wife of one of his most loyal soldiers, without consent, it's appalling. And when Bathsheba reveals that she's pregnant, David has her husband murdered and killed. And then the child dies. This is an appalling, painful, and ugly story. Our regrets, I don't think, would end up being quite as extreme as his. But we still have them. Remember we placed regrets into three categories, three big buckets. The first one was regrets of action. The things that we did when you're like, why did I say that? Why, why, why? Lies told and relationships broken, money that we spent, why? And then there were the regrets of inaction. When we should have been doing something, but we just stood there or sat there listening, taking no time to help, time wasted, risks that weren't taken, words that were left unspoken, and now you can't. We even thought about regrets of reaction. Something happens to us and the way we respond is not always the way that would have been our best choice. And some of those start with a health diagnosis that we didn't ever expect or a truth that's been uncovered or a rejection that's been felt. And often our regrets leave us stuck in this kind of a sorry cycle. It's like being in the dryer at home. You just go round and round feeling sorry for ourselves, making another poor choice, feeling sorry for ourselves, making some more poor choices. And we just go round the dryer, round and round. What if? What if we could break out of that cycle? What if life could be different and we could move beyond regret? Because God's ability to reframe his power of redemption, the extent of his rescue is comprehensive. It's unlimited, no matter what regret you're dealing with. The missteps you've made that make you groan or your face is bright red with embarrassment when you think about it, God can reframe all of those regrets of action. And the opportunities of the past that you grieve that you never took, the conversations you didn't have, the things you should have done but didn't, God can redeem those regrets of inaction. And the responses we've had to tragic circumstances that ended making things worse, not better, when we're ashamed of the way we've talked about things or done things, 
with blame and with bitterness, God can reframe all these regrets of our reactions as well. But how does God do that? How does he help us move beyond regret and get out of the cycle? The first step we talked about a couple of weeks ago was to recognize our regret, to stare it in the face, to to name it for what it is, to own it rather than letting it own us. We don't ignore it. We don't hide from it. We acknowledge it before God, acknowledge to ourselves, acknowledge it to other people perhaps. And it sometimes feels like ripping off the band-aid, but that's where healing begins when we get honest and truthful about where we are. Eventually, King David got honest. When the prophet Nathan confronted him about his choices and behaviors, he recognized and owned up to what he had done and the evil choices that he had made. The second step was to release our regrets. Because you can't hold on to them if you're going to move forward. We own it. We let it go. Sometimes we hold on to regrets like a security blanket for who knows what reason, rather than choosing to hold on to Jesus and just letting go of those things. Maybe releasing them involves forgiveness. And that's probably why it's so hard to let go. Because sometimes it means asking for forgiveness. Sometimes it means extending forgiveness to someone else. And either way, that can be really, really hard. Forgiveness is hard. If nothing else today, you can believe me because I know this. Because I struggle with this. My personal struggle is I need to release and forgive somebody. And my honest answer is right now I can't. Last weekend, Pastor Kyle was showing us how David did. How he recognizes and releases his regret. In a prayer that's captured for us in Psalm 51, it begins like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He's pleading to God. Step one, we recognize our regrets. Step two, we release them. Today we're talking about that third step, that Jesus can reframe our regrets. What does that look like? Now let's press into David's story a little later. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. As this has all been unfolding. God began to reframe David's regrets by giving him a son. We read this. Then David consoled his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her and she bore a son. And he named him Solomon. The Lord loved him and sent a message by the prophet Nathan. So he named him Jedidiah because of the Lord. Somehow David and Bathsheba reconciled. I have no idea how. I really don't. They married. And David named this child Solomon, which could mean God's peace or God's restoration. And God confirmed this reframing in David's life by sending the same prophet, Nathan, to give Solomon another name, a middle name, a Jedidiah, which means God's beloved. It's as though every time David would look in the face of this little child, his son, he would recognize that God is reframing and redeeming his life, that God still loves him despite his regrets. His perspective was changing. In fact, we read in the second book, first book of Kings that he told Bathsheba, his wife, he said this, the king swore saying, as the Lord lives who has saved my life from every adversity, 
as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, your son Solomon shall succeed me as king and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So will I do this day. And Solomon one day would go on to do great things as Israel's king. He would construct the temple in Jerusalem where people would gather to worship. Under his reign, the nation experienced financial and economic success and peace with most of their enemies. And ultimately, it's through the, the line of David, his son Solomon, and going on that you discover the Messiah's line. Jesus was their direct physical descendant. God reframed David's regrets through the birth of a child. It's how God worked all of this disastrous, evil, sinful stuff somehow into some good in David's life. Even his greatest regrets. And God wants to take your story of regret, whatever it is, and turn it into a story of redemption and reframe your life. He changes our perspective. Your worst moments are where God can do his best work. Think about it. Your worst moments are where he can do his best work. When you're at your lowest and we feel the pain of regret, God can bring the greatest change as he changes us and changes our perspective. How? Well, I think we can recognize it's something God wants to do. We're not trying to beg him to help as though he couldn't care. He wants to do it because we can't do this on our own. If you don't believe me, go and have a go at it. Go and try and fix out your own regrets all by yourself. See how that works out. It's never worked out for me. But God wants to and he can do. He can redeem any and every regret. He can reframe the story of anybody's life. And the good news is today, he wants to do this for you. Doesn't mean we have no part in the process. Our parts to trust that he can do, that he can reframe, he can redeem, he can rescue. There's another R word. You think of it, imagine this, you're out in the ocean or out in the sea somewhere, your little boat's capsized, you're hanging in as best you can, you're going down for the third time, you need somebody to come and rescue you. And God comes along and does that. And what do you do? You basically hold up your arms and let him or whoever he sent pull you out of the water. At that moment, all we really can do is trust. And that's all God is really asking us to do is to trust him, to trust him to rescue. You ready today to let God do that for you and rescue you from the regret that you're thinking about right now? Here's something else we should be, pay attention to. This reframing business it takes many forms and not necessarily what you would expect it to be because God tailors that uniquely to each one of us and to the unique circumstances that we face and stories that we tell. Many of us have taken painful detours in life, asking questions about meaning. And perhaps for you, God's reframing is going to look like finding your way back to God again. Taking a second look, beginning to wonder, what could God do for me? And when we do, we discover that God is waiting with wide open arms, which is why I'm inviting you to come to Alpha. Whether you follow Jesus or not, why don't you come and see what God might do in you? Because sometimes God's reframing looks like finding your way back to him again. Sometimes it, it looks like spiritual growth. When the bottom falls out of our world, sometimes we just stop and we get really stuck and don't know what to do. And sometimes we kind of end up just flat on our knees, which is not such a bad place to be, humbled before God. And it's there that we learn to grow spiritually as he changes things. 
Sometimes this reframing, the changing of stuff can be like changing the schedule. We started a business that didn't go well, didn't go well at all. Didn't happen in our time frame and we thought God would do it all for us. And maybe he will or maybe he won't. Or maybe he just knows what's best for us. Or maybe that's a young couple hoping they could have a child. And that hasn't happened yet. And the pain of that is so very real. I'm not minimizing it. But perhaps God's doing something we don't understand yet. Reframing sometimes looks like an opportunity to bless somebody else. I have so many friends that have recovered from addiction and volunteer so much of their time to help others whose lives are broken and they spend their time giving to somebody else to bless them in the difficult journey they're on. Maybe you need to write down this question. If you've got a piece of paper or you've got your phone, I'd choose to write it down. A question that I think you could answer in your situation and your regret. And it's simply this. How is God at work in this situation? How is God at work in this situation? The thing you're thinking about, the part of your story you don't like to tell, the pain that you carry, the thing that you're ashamed of. How is God at work in this situation? Here's something else I think we need to be aware of. Redemption requires us to take the long view. You can't speed up God's work. You can try, but he's pretty hard to move. <laughs> he liked in his own time, regardless of what you do. But you certainly can waste, you shorten the amount of time you waste being in the dryer, in the sorry cycle. Instead of getting stuck there, we can begin to be mindful of what we're doing with our regrets, that we are recognizing them, that we're releasing them, that we're inviting Jesus to reframe them in our lives. And we can turn the feedback that's coming to us instead of leaving us stuck. We can open ourselves up to what God might do. Remember the words of Daniel Pink I mentioned a couple of weeks ago? He said, unproductive regret paralyzes, but productive regret catalyzes us. The Apollo 13 astronauts, the devastating fire inside their capsule, trying to figure it out how to get home, get their air scrubbers working again to reduce the CO2. They also discovered a way to get back home again, taking advantage of something called free return trajectory. They looped around the moon and they used the gravity to slingshot themselves back to Earth and then trying to keep the blue ball in sight as they were navigating their way home again. And I think it's like that with regrets. We don't need to orbit round them for the rest of our lives per permanently, tethered to the gravity that they sometimes pull in our soul. Instead, we can use them to propel ourselves forward in life. And yes, sometimes life does throw us for a loop, I get that, but we don't need to be staying here, stuck in a cycle, orbiting around. We can press forward and allow God to change everything. You go back to the story of David with me for a moment. He had to take the long view. Solomon didn't just show up immediately and everything was different and everything was made right. Solomon was actually the fourth child that David had with Bathsheba, if you read in 1 Kings. It took a long time for David's life to be changed. This was years later when he's talking like this. For David to see the redemptive work of God in his life, he needed to take the long view. And sometimes I think we tend to panic if our regrets aren't eliminated immediately. My experience is that God is rarely in the same hurry that I am. Maybe your regret is something painful. And it is taking the long view. An estranged relationship. A failed business venture. 
horrible accident. I want you to watch this with me on the screen. I had been a very high-level national swimmer throughout all of high school, <laughs> to the degree of missing school, to be able to pool nine times a week, mornings, nights, the whole thing. And it was the end of 2003, and we were prepping for nationals, for Olympic trials. And talked to my coach and said, I need to, I need to take a break. I've been doing this for 12 years straight. Uh, I just need a mental break. I need to take a step away. Did that in December of 20, uh, 2003. And in February was the car accident. I put my head through the window of a car. It's not ideal, uh, even with seatbelt on. And so I had amnesia-related issues, physical problems, which I still have. Um, I still go through bouts of chronic migraines for the last 20 years due to the car accident, um, back problems, shoulder problems. After the accident, I actually attempted to go back about two years later which wasn't successful. Um, I was met with a lot of, you're too old, you can't do this anymore. I was 20. I found a new sport, which I thought was gonna fill that hole, Olympic weightlifting, uh, which I was very successful with. Got injured from that, which happens, like just in sport, you go through bouts of injuries. All the way from the bottom, signed up for first aid CPR. So I actually fin went from zero to being a paramedic in 11 and a half months. I'd say that I, I overcame a lot of those questions through prayer and listening to God, listening to Him speak, and developing a peace around the change and a change in perspective that He's given me, and not filling that question with more questions or fear or anger or frustration or doubt. The confidence, I think, is a big, a big thing that he redeemed in me. And confidence in so many things. A confidence in myself as a father. Confidence that I'm, I'm going to be good at my craft. I'm going to be a good paramedic. I'm going to help people. What if everything changes again? Out of my hands, maybe. I'm a man of history repeating itself positively and negatively. And if there's anybody that knows our history and our future, where we're going, it's God. It's not me. I know my past, barely. And what if something changes? Well, I have, I have the best person in my in my team, on my side, to redeem anything that's happened, which I never had before. It's always there, but when you're younger and all that happens and you're not walking in his, his footsteps, you don't have that. So if, he, if he's here now, I don't, I don't really have anything to lose. He'll redeem me, plain and simple. There's no questions asked. Did you hear Jeremy's words? <laughs> Thank you for sharing them with us. A change of perspective, he said. That's reframing. Redeeming? That's Jesus showing up to rescue. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes years.
The Bible is full of stories of people for whom this reframing process took a very long time, but God worked in them in his time, not ours, to change and redeem their situations. If you like, he recycled them. There's another R word. I'm on a roll. Jacob, a thief and a con man. God redeemed and recycled his scheming till he became the father of a nation, but it took dozens of years. Moses, a murderer, and God redeemed and reframed his rage and his hatred with a renewed perspective that he would lead his people to freedom. That took half a lifetime. Ruth, a worshiper of idols, but God took her life and redeemed it, and she became a direct ancestor of Jesus himself. Peter, impulsive, inconsistent, even denying Jesus, yet Jesus grabbed hold of him with all of his flaws and failures and restored his relationship so that he could be a rock that Jesus could build his church upon. Zacchaeus, We laugh about him up his tree, hiding, greedy, cheating, dishonest, and Jesus recycled his greed and his corrupt business practices and turned him into a generous follower who loved people so graciously. Paul, we've already met him today, persecutor of the early followers of Jesus. His life was turned into something very different as the greatest storyteller and missionary that Jesus had. The list could go on. But in the end, you begin to realize they're all taking the long view. So how are you doing with your regrets? Have you recognized them? Or are you still trying to hide from them? Have you released them? Or are you just staying trapped in the lie? Will you let Jesus reframe them? Are you just going to choose to live in the dryer and the sorry cycle? Going nowhere. Would you let God do his good work in you and through you? Even if it does take a long time. God's giving us all a choice today when it comes to regrets. We can stay stuck. Or we can reach out in faith. Your choice. Nobody's forcing you or making you. And I'm not saying that reframing our regrets is simple or pain-free. It's hard. It's challenging. It's complex. But it begins with a simple choice. Stay stuck or reach out. What's it going to be? The moment we're going to listen to a beautiful song. A beautiful song about God making beautiful things out of our lives and sometimes that's really hard to see how can he make something beautiful out of some of our regrets maybe if you're anything like me maybe you want to pray right now why not make my prayer your prayer of expectation I'm going to put it on the screen for you You may want to choose to read it out loud and pray out loud with me if you'd care, if this is useful for you. And so we pray together. Jesus, I need you to reframe my life. I'm filled with regret and I know I can't fix this by myself. Can you make something beautiful out of this for me? I'm choosing your perspective. I'm choosing your way. I'm trusting you.
Amen.